Previously at Solid Rock, last week we ended the sermon talking about the difference between put-offs and put-ons in the scriptures. We were trying to think about this idea of how do I know I'm fighting in my own strength or the spirit strength? How do I know I'm fighting the way the Lord wants me to or on my own strength? And that's sort of a challenge. It's almost a litmus test for believers because we are always going to be mixed in some of our motives to some degree. And so we talked about specifically putting off and putting on. We looked at the Old Testament and the, you know, these are people that didn't have the spirit of God in the same way that God says he's going to give us his spirit and has given us his spirit in the new covenant, in the New Testament, the new covenant because of Jesus. And so, so we look at the, the Ten Commandments and, and those are a summation of God's moral law. And most of those, eight of those Ten Commandments are put off. Don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. But when we get to the New Testament, the new covenant, in the spirit, the language changes. It changes to, to put this on. Don't just put off this, but put this on in its place. And so it's if God is communicating a message that it's not enough to just stop being bitter. It's to you stop being bitter by putting on gratitude, by being thankful. It's not enough to, to stop anxiety, to try to stop being anxious but you also, you put on confidence. You, you pray to the Lord. You call these things out. You, you don't just put off, but you put on. Now, if you think about what God is saying, to be able to put something on when you don't feel that way means God isn't asking us to feel a certain way. He's asking us to do something in faith. As I said last week, you will not find an incredible translation change your heart or your emotions because God already said, I've given you a new heart. You see, with God, it's always about faith. Faith isn't just I, when I die, I go to heaven. Faith is I can actually access and do what he's commanded me to do, even though I don't feel like it. And so we talked about not being in the mood. We, I gave some examples of being pulled over and having a belligerent cop and you don't say nothing back or you and your job and your boss embarrasses you and you just have the self-control to not respond how you feel. Well, well, God is saying that that is accessible beyond those particular moments. Not only is it accessible, it is our responsibility to put on these things and we do them by faith. We believe that we are who he said he is. So that was last week. Today we're going to continue with this idea of how do we know we're in God's strength or our own strength. So we ended with put-offs and put-ons. This week I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to answer the question with the question, how do I know I am obeying in God's strength on my own? Well, here's the question. What weapons are you fighting with? What are your weapons? What are your weapons of warfare? God has clearly given us, clearly given us weapons. Well, what are they? If you want to know if you're fighting in God's strength, you have to use his weapons. If you do not, then you are not. From God's perspective, it's really not complicated. So we're not going to start this morning. We ended in Romans. We're in Romans 8. We ended with this verse, Romans 8, 13, because if you live according to the flesh, you were going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how do we put to death the deeds of the body? By the spirit. This morning, we're going to spend a considerable amount of time, not in Romans, but in Ephesians. I want to go to Ephesians 6 and just camp here before we jump back to Romans. And the reason why, because this is too important. It's too important of a reality for us. 
And it's one of those things where if we were in the mood to be honest, we don't think about too much. Most of the people that I know that are godly want to be godly. But most of us want God to just do it real quick. So the impulse to want to live godly is there. But the process and the confidence to engage in the process of it, not so much. And by saying that, I don't mean no one wants to glorify God in process. What I mean is our desires for God to just do this real quick is a reality because if God just does it real quick, then we don't have to do anything. I know I failed in my Christian life plenty of times with particular people, even in my own household, where I just... I'll think like this. I just don't even want to be tempted by this person. So I'll just, I'm not even going to engage in that relationship. If my kids are getting on my nerves or something, I'm just, I don't even want to be tempted. Let me just go in my office. I don't even want to be tempted. I don't even feel like fighting. Because sometimes I just don't feel like failing. So I'd rather just not even be around you if you're going to tempt me to fight. And here's the problem with that. When it becomes that becomes my reality, then I can always find a reason to not be around anybody. But God never said, he said, flee from sexual immorality, not flee from everything. Because we're supposed to be in situations so that we learn how to put on these things. God wants us there. In 1 Corinthians 5, God said, look, don't associate with those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, and slanderers. And he said, I don't mean the world. I mean people who call themselves Christians. Don't be around those folks. You got to correct those folks. But he said, you're supposed to be around people because then you'd have to be out of the world. God is not trying to remove us out of the world. In fact, in the, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he specifically prayed. I do not, I do not want you to take them out of the world. <laughs> but that they would learn how to be one as you and I are one. See, often we either want to be fully sanctified or out of the world. And it's somewhere in between because in faith, we have to learn how to put on. In Ephesians 6, Mike Reference this when he was praying. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So, so Mike explained already, but let me just reiterate briefly. For he said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. First and foremost, all believers have to understand that. You see, we live in a culture where our struggle is always somebody else. It's always the conservatives. It's always the liberals. It's always the lefts. It's always the right. It's always the, the, the people, the poor people who complain about victimization. It's always this person. It's always that person. You make me so angry. It's always somebody else. But the scripture says, look, our battle is not against flesh and blood. There's a deeper reality going on. There's a deeper war going on right now. This person isn't just getting on your nerves. There was something spiritual at work here. You didn't just have this crazy thought. There's something spiritual at work here. Now think about what he's saying. Our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, and he says against the rulers, the authorities, and against the cosmic powers of this darkness. These are varying degrees of demonic authority in this world. And he calls it, I like the ESV uh, uh, rendition better, says this present darkness. This is Paul writing this after the cross, after the resurrection and after Jesus ascends to heaven and gives the spirit. After Jesus has been declared to have the victory, Paul still calls this earth a present darkness. So yes, we believe Jesus has a victory. Yes, we live that in faith. But don't pretend like 
everything is okay. There is a spiritual battle happening whether we pay attention to it or not. And it's not just in movies like The Conjuring. The spiritual battle is in you not wanting to pray. It's in you getting all these notifications when you're trying to read. It's the fact that you're trying to read the Bible and all of a sudden you're just really tired. It's the fact that you're not a reader. There's spiritual warfare going on in just the everyday mundane things. You think you're nursing an attitude because of no reason? You think you keep having this thought of the way that the person offends you for no reason? When they say it's not just flesh and blood, it also means yours. There's something deeper going on. Paul knows this, and so he said, listen, I need to tell you what weapons you have to fight against this. These are the weapons that God has given you. These these are so you know you're fighting in the spirit of God. You're fighting in God's strength. You have to use his weapons. In any army, any military in the world, they're going to give you weapons. If you don't use their weapons, it's your fault. You've heard the term, why'd you bring a knife to a gunfight? You brought the wrong weapon. Sadly, many of us bring knives to gunfights. So Paul lays this out. He says in verse 13, for this reason, he says, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. So here he lays out this full armor of God. So that you may be able to resist, not because it's possible, not like, well, it's put. No, he's saying you're able to. Like, this is a fundamental reality. If you take up these things, then these you are able to resist in this evil day. You know why this is important? Because we're around more evil than we are righteousness all the time. We see more evil on, in media, both social and sort of com- corporate. We just see it all around us. We could just be driving in the street and someone, you know, be reckless on the street, road rage. We are inundated with evil constantly. We've gotten used to some of it, so it doesn't seem as evil but we're just inundated with evil. It's all around us. So Paul says, look, take up the full armor so that you can resist in that day. And then he goes through the next four verses highlighting what that is. Now he's describing, now now this is where, remember, the Bible's not written to us. It's written for us, but not to us. It's a difference. He's writing to particular people the church in the first century, who would understand these references? So it's written for us, and it's God's word, and we use it, but it wasn't written to us. He would talk differently today if it was written to us. But it's not. It's written for us, so we have to read how it was written to them and then see how it applies for us. So he's describing a Roman soldier and the way Roman soldiers go to battle. And he's giving a visual illustration to them. They would know exactly what he's meaning. See, see, we watch movies like 300, but they saw 300. They watched the Roman soldiers lock arms together so that they would fight against a wall, just like the movie. They had their shields up, and these, these army forces could not penetrate these 300 men against thousands of people because of their formation and their weaponry, and they understood how to use their weapons. And so Paul is saying, though you are outnumbered, you're going to teach you how to be in formation like the Roman soldiers. They don't lose, at least not in this moment. So he lists all these things that represent what, so in these, these people, this church, the church in Ephesus and all around that time would have been like, oh, okay. All right, I see what he's saying. 
So he begins in verse 14. He says this, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, verse 16, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now we read this and think, okay, what in the world does this mean practically? We're not first century church. What in the world does this mean 2,000 years later? Well, this is how we put to death the deeds of the body so that we may live by the Spirit. Let's look at these and try to see what does that mean practically for us. These are the weapons that God has given us to stand, to resist the enemy with success. He says able to resist. This is with success. God is giving you success, giving us success here. And so the first thing he says is, let the belt of truth, with a truth-like belt around your waist. Now, a belt obviously holds our pants up, right? A belt is necessary in most occasions. Everyone knows what a belt is. It comes around your waist. You tie it up and it keeps everything that you're holding together. You know, if, you're, if I'm standing up here and my pants fall down on my ankles, y'all would laugh. I would laugh. My wife would be appalled. And my children would be in between. You know why? Because the belt is important. It protects the most precious parts. It protects the part of you that no one's supposed to see. The belt represents the stability to one carry yourself and to keep things up that you need to keep up. He calls it, therefore, with truth like a belt. This is the belt of truth. Well, then what is truth? In John 17, 17, I alluded to earlier, here is a verse from the priestly prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father. He said this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. He's praying to the Father. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Paul's saying truth must be like a belt around your way. It means the truth of God's word, the truth of who God is, must be what holds us up. It must be. It can't be anything else. It has to be. If, if, if it's in God's word, I believe it. It has to be the truth of God's word. This is where in Acts 17, when Paul was teaching, it said some Bereans, they went and checked the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying is true. You see, that was the truth of the, the belt was the, the truth of God's word. They said, we need to check the word. First John 4 tells us to test the spirits. I mean, does, does what you're hearing measure up with the Bible? That needs to be the centerpiece that holds us up. Does what we're hearing measure up with the Bible? Listen, there has never been a generation in history that doesn't need that. But I tell you what, we need it now more than ever. Because all we hear is all this stuff and all this language that makes sense. And we don't even know what it even means biblically. And both solid believers and false believers are using the same language. And believers are getting all confused and thinking we're saying something. We don't even know what it means. For example, if I'm woke, what is that biblically? If I need to repent or walk in a manner worthy of being woke, what, what do I do with that? What does that mean? But yet believers will call each other that all day, but no one's giving any biblical definition to what it means. 
So you're calling me something that I don't even know what to do with biblically because I don't know how to define it because no one's defining it. But yet somehow that is a statement of truth towards believers. You're woke. What in the world does that mean? Ephesians 15 says, awaken and arise. Then I'm woke then. What is white privilege? What is that biblically? What is someone supposed to do? How do you walk in a manner worthy? How do you put off white privilege? What is that biblically? You see, there's a lot of believers that use this language and they say it with conviction. They will tweet about it. They will jump on others' tweets about it. They'll talk about it, but it has no biblical substance. When does the, where does the Jesus say repent of wokeness and white privilege? What does that even mean biblically? The most solid theologians have yet to find the definition, and believe me, I've been looking. You've heard this term, virtue signaling. I'm sure, many of you. If you haven't, you're about to learn something. Virtue signaling is supposed to be a term that mocks other people, but here's the actual definition of virtue signaling. The action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. So what people will say is you're virtue signaling, meaning you're trying to state your position that you care about something and that's a negative thing in, in culture. But doesn't the Bible tell us we're supposed to? Like, what do I do with Philippians 4, 5 that says, let your graciousness be known to all, the Lord is near. Or in the ESV translation, let your reasonableness be known to all. We're actually supposed to say things and supposed to give perspective on things and, and demonstrate what we care about and show that we have character in that issue. How did all of a sudden that become a negative thing? And believers are falling into this and using this language. People in this room using this language all the time. Show me in the Bible where this is. So I can do something about it. If not, then why in the world are you saying it? Because it's dividing the church. It's dividing the church. It's not biblical justice. It's conservative and liberal justice. We have to put on the belt of truth. Where in God's word is that? If I'm doing something wrong, show me in the Bible so I can go after that. I'm not being convicted of being woke. Spirits never said to me, Kurt, was a little woke in that last night. What does that mean? Because I care about something that you don't? Or because the Lord sovereignly allowed white people to be an advantage in the country? Now somehow that's a sin? See, I'm using that as an example to show because these are the things that happen when we just fall into the prey of the language and the culture of the day and not compare it to the Bible, then we're not letting the belt of truth hold us up. The belt of truth, God's word, sanctify them by the truth that has to guide us. I believe what the Bible affirms. I had a dude tell me yesterday, well, man, I just, I mean, I like what you say sometimes, but I don't, I just can't be balanced, man. I think we got to choose a side in the situation. I just can't be neutral. I said, bro, balance is not being neutral. Balance is a position. It just means I see problems with all the positions. And I'm going to speak about all of the positions. If I choose a side the way you're describing, then what happens is I only see problems with the other side. Because I don't hear a lot of people on your side critique your side. And I don't hear a lot of people on the other side critique their side. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 5.11 calls all believers to expose the deeds of darkness. If I choose a side, that means I think this side doesn't have darkness and that one does. I said, no, being balanced, staying balanced is a position. My position is I think there's problems with everything. It's about pursuing truth and calling it out. We have to be guided by the belt of truth. Otherwise, I'm just, I'm telling you, I'm watching believers just slip away. I'm just like, what does that mean biblically, bro? Like, what is someone supposed to do with that? And no one has given me an answer yet. No one. I've used all these terms. What do these mean? What do these mean? We're supposed to be solid Christians. You're writing books on stuff and you still don't, I don't even know what it means. I'm just, I'm just, it just, I see it destroying the church, and for what? 
the belt of truth guides us. He says next, verse 14, stand therefore with the truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest. So here's the, the righteousness, this, this armor that would go over the Roman soldier's chest was strong to prevent spears and arrows to penetrate their heart. It was, it was, it, it was a way of blocking, protecting the most vital organ in your body, which is your heart. So make sure you protect that. You have a chest of righteousness. Protect this organ. Protect this. Proverbs 4.23 tells us this. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. So God is saying, listen, put some on, protect this thing. What does he mean by that? It means you got to fight against, go after sinful thoughts and attitudes that will guide us. And this is where the put-ons comes in. We got to put off this and put on this. We, he said, look, put this on. You got the belt of truth holding you up, the righteousness of God. God is righteous. God is moral. We want to be righteous before God. We want to live righteously. We want to live as he lived. So we got to fight against the thoughts and attitudes that come from the heart. We want to protect it. And don't let other people, like the stuff I was just saying, come in and invade our hearts so that we take up other people's offenses. How do we do that? Let me give you two practical ways to do this. One, consistently ask yourself, what fruit of the Spirit is this? Ask yourself that for yourself, and ask yourself that of your favorite theologian when they're tweeting stuff and saying things. What fruit of the Spirit is that? I know the Bible says contend for the faith, but they shouldn't be contentious while you do it. There's a difference. There's a difference between being a child of God and being childish for God. There's a difference. What fruit of the Spirit is that? You want to go after it? You want to protect it? What fruit of the Spirit is that in my own heart? What fruit of the Spirit is that? It gives you discernment. Another way to protect that heart is to ask God and others for forgiveness when you're wrong because it'll prevent you having a hard heart. You see, when you, and I'm not talking about saying sorry. So for some people, that's semantics. No, I don't think so. Sorry is when I accidentally bump into you and spill coke on you. When I'm asking you for forgiveness, that's because I understand that I've done a moral wrong against you. Now I want to bring the cross to bear on this situation because I've committed a sin that Jesus died on the cross for and I need to ask you for forgiveness. I'm not going to say I'm sorry because sorry is just a code word and sorry to me can be, can be, it can be pride to just humble yourself and say I was morally wrong because sorry is too general. If it's not sin, I don't, I don't say, I don't ask people for forgiveness if it wasn't sin. When you say you're sorry, that's anything. Even with my kids, I tell them, son, you, nah, you, they know, like, no, nah, I got to ask for forgiveness. If they say, I'm sorry, that I just not say, why are you saying you're sorry, son? You, you didn't honor the Lord. Why are you saying you're sorry? And we got to do the same thing. We don't say, oh, I'm sorry I yelled at you. No. I sinned against the Lord. I didn't honor him. I didn't honor you. Please forgive me. See, when we don't do that, we slowly can let our hearts just get hardened to the things that happen. When I don't humble myself and acknowledge it like, hey, then I just let my heart just build up and all of a sudden you become the problem. It becomes something that you said or did. It becomes your views. Your, there are certain things like, like there's sometimes I'll just ask people like, why does this offend you? Like even if I tweeted something that you don't like, like why are you offended personally? There are times people go back and forth with me on Twitter, and I just have to be like this. Fam, it's Twitter. We don't know each other. I don't know you. It's Twitter. This isn't a phone call. We're not in fellowship together. It's Facebook. This isn't real. We got to guard this. 
to the, 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 the righteousness, the armor, the righteousness. It's a chest of right. You got to guard this, protect it. Because, man, this is, what, this, is the, this is easy to hit. This is the target. This is the target. Let me get your emotions. Let me get you this. Let me get you afraid of this. Let me get you angry at this. Let's do this. And all of a sudden, you forget that it's about the battle is not with flesh and blood. All of a sudden, it becomes these people, this person. It doesn't become you. We have to guard our hearts above all else, for it is the source of life. The third thing he lists in verse 15. And your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Oh, man, people don't even think that this is actual weapon. Said sandaled feet, the gospel of peace. What is he talking about? Romans 10, 14 through 15. I promise we'll be there sometime next year. He says this in verse 14 of Romans 10. How then can they call on him that have not obeyed, that they've not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. One of God's weapons to help us fight against the devil is telling other people about God. Sandaled feet with the gospel of peace. God determined that one of the weapons for you in fighting against the evil around you is to tell other people about me. And how often is this a product of our own choosing? It's not a command that we think. It's not a, it's not a weapon for us. It's optional. And largely based on our personalities. The sandaled feet, the gospel of peace, is a weapon that God has given believers to help them resist the devil. Why? Because when you're telling others about Jesus, it does something in you, it gives you more confidence. I mean, there are those of us in this room that have done it. You ever you preach the gospel to someone, whether they accept the faith or not, there's, a, there's something about that. There's something about telling someone about Jesus. Then if they accept Jesus, if they accept the gospel, oh, man, you're ready to take on the world. Man, you're ready to go on vacation. It just it feels different. There's something about it that is, and, and it's probably because heaven said that, 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 that all heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. So when you get to be the one that God decides to lead that person to the faith, it energizes you. It gives you a desire to want to experience that joy again. But many of us don't experience that joy because we're too consumed by our own lives. We're too afraid of the rejection that someone might say. If they reject the gospel, they reject the gospel. Jesus told his disciples, look, when you go into a city, if they reject it, wipe the sandals off of your feet. I tried that one day. I took my shoes off and wiped it off. They didn't know what I was doing. I didn't either because I stepped in something I didn't pay attention to. That's a different conversation. Preaching the gospel is not optional for the believer. It's one of the weapons that God has given us to help us resist the enemy. And if we're struggling with our spiritual life, maybe we should try applying this particular weapon. You know what? Let me tell someone else about Jesus. Let me just step out of my comfort zone and tell someone. And if it's online, hey, can I DM you and ask you a question? Start there. It's easy to do it online. You don't got to see their face. They don't got to see yours. Can I DM you and share something with you? This is a weapon. But the enemy has made it something optional, something for people with a particular gift set do. God doesn't say any of these have to do with anybody's personality or gift set. These are just the weapons that God has given for his people to put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. 
I'm not making this up. Please feel free. I am not a great preacher. You guys can go find better preachers or commentaries and look it up and see if I'm saying, just talking out the side of my neck. I assure you, these are weapons that God has given us. And I know I have not taken advantage of this particular weapon. The next weapon in verse 16, he says this, in every situation, take up the shield of faith. This is, the, this is what he says, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Who is it? This is the only, this is the only weapon that he attaches something about the enemy to. This is the only one. The rest of them, he just says, do this. You know, belt of truth, chest plate of righteousness, sandaled feet. But this one, faith, he says, this extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. So right in the middle of as he's listing these, he's making sure that the, that church knows and this church knows that, hey, this one is serious. This is, this can, remind you, this is spiritual warfare we're talking about. The shield of faith is what you use to protect you from the flaming darts of the evil one. He says it's faith. What kind of faith is he talking about? You already believe in Jesus. I think it's simply the Hebrews 11:6 faith. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to believe that God exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. Why is that important for faith? Because if we don't genuinely believe that God rewards us for seeking him, we're not going to be motivated to do it. Remember, these are God's words. God put this in here. That without this faith, it's impossible for anyone to please me. And here are the caveats. That I exist and that I reward those who seek me. Because if we don't, you're only going to obey him for so long. You're not going to fight as hard. And those arrows are going to start to penetrate the armor. There's a reality that God is saying, listen, the shield of faith extinguishes because that's what the enemy goes after. This is what Peter was telling Jesus. Look, the enemy, he wants Satan, wants to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. So when he denied Jesus three times and ran off into the wilderness, he said he wept bitterly, Peter, and the enemy just attacked him, condemnation. The shield of faith is not just, I believe in Jesus. It said, no, what I'm doing to obey God, I believe that he rewards me for seeking him. And that reward is not necessarily the things that I desire for my life. See, we get confused on the reward. The reward is not, I'm going to get this new job, house, I'm going to get married, we're going to get this, my kids are going to be saved. That's not the reward that he is promising here. He just said he will reward those who seek him. And he doesn't say what it is. I think so that we're not sitting there like, where is it at? But one of the rewards, one of the rewards of using your faith and believing that he rewards those and, and doing things motivated by that, one of the rewards is that you stay in the faith. Christianity is a privilege. It's a privilege. Many people often don't think like that, but it's a privilege. I mean, you think about it for a second. The creator of the universe, the God who created everything, saw that the world was so sinful that the people that he created would not obey him. So instead of punishing them or constantly changing the ways to save them, he decides to become one of them. And not just descending from heaven as a full-grown adult, but as a baby. Grows up. Lives perfectly. Gets punished. Physically and spiritually. And mind you, 
Make no mistake. The 39 lashes or whatever that Christ got before he got to the cross, the crown of thorns on his head, and the actual nails going in Christ's flesh was not the pain that he was concerned with. Because the two thieves that were beside him and hundreds of other people were crucified in the same way Jesus was. The pain that Jesus struggled with was not the nails going in the flesh. Yes, it hurt, but that's not the real issue for him. The real issue was what was behind that pain and the deeper level that you and I will never be able to experience. Do you know in, the, in Revelation, we don't see anyone else that appears to be slain. Jesus is the only figure that we know in Revelation, in eternity, that appears to be slain. Even the martyrs in, Ro in, in Revelation 6, the fifth seal, don't look, it just said they were, they were people who knew that they had been martyred and God had given them white robes, but Jesus is the only one that still wears those wounds in heaven because those wounds weren't just earthly wounds. They were spiritual wounds. They were eternal wounds. That's why Revelation 5 says, man, look, a lamb looks like he was slain. That's to let us know that that, the cross, the pain of the physical cross was not the issue because none of us are going to carry those wounds into eternity. We got glorified bodies. We get rose. We get all that good stuff. But Jesus still looks like he was slain because on the cross, he experienced the eternal wound of the father. And that wound stays there so that we can see it. It's not going anywhere. It'll be right there. So we know that's Jesus. That's him. How do you know? Because I can see the wound. That God says, I'm inviting you to believe in me. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And I'm going to help you fight. All I'm asking you to do is fight. And persevere to the end. It's a privilege to be a believer. It's not a religion. It's not a relationship. It's part of it. It's all of it. But it's a privilege for that God to say, I choose you. Come on in. I choose you. But what about, I'm wicked, I'm... I choose you. Follow me. He rewards us for seeking him. And the ultimate reward is to be with him in eternity. That requires faith because we don't know anybody that's gone and come back and be like, man, y'all don't know what y'all missing. We've never seen that. That's why he said to Thomas, see Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and believe. He goes on in verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the helmet of salvation. The helmet Protects the mind, protects the eyes, protects the mouth. It goes over the head. The helmet of salvation. We need to be reminding ourselves. We have to stay in our mind our salvation. This is talking about our identity here. This is where God is telling you, listen, part of your weaponry is to remind yourself who you are. Remind yourself who you are. We're going to look at this in a second. But when we, you notice in Jesus' temptation, remember what Satan said to him specifically? He said this, in each thing, if you are the son of God, why does he say that? He knows Jesus is the son of God. How do the other demons call out and say, please don't torture us. We know who you are, son of God. But Satan doesn't. No, when he said, if you are the son of God, it was because he, that's his pattern to go after the identity of the people that belong to God. So he wanted to throw that out there to make Jesus question his identity. He makes us question our identity. 
So God says, put the helmet of salvation, the truth of salvation on. Romans 5, I'm so glad to quote the passage we've already done. Romans 5, 6 through 11, he says this, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we now have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but also, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the truth we have to remember. Like, we, like we've said in this whole book, because we don't always feel this way. So we have to remind ourselves, no, this is who I am. So when you get that temptation, if you really are the son of God, oh, you're not the son of God because you failed yesterday. You're not the son of God because you got angry. You're not the son of God because you've given in the lust. You're not the son of God because you're anxious all the time. You're not the son of God because you're bitter. You're not a daughter because you did this. You're not a daughter because you thought that. That's what he goes after. And so God says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Remind yourself who you are. Put your salvation on. Do not forget because he will in some way, shape, or form question if you are a son or a daughter, based on areas that you've fallen in. If he questioned Jesus, who never fell and was perfect and is the son of God, then why wouldn't he use the same thing for us? He's not that clever. He has the same techniques. We just don't have the same faith to fight him. He says the sword of the spirit. This is different from the belt of truth. The sword of the spirit is to be taken and used This is what Hebrews 4 says about the sword of the spirit. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You have to use this as a weapon. Lastly, he says prayer. In the spirit, alert, with perseverance, intercession. In the spirit is not this, um, it's not this mode that you just click on and be like, oh, this, I'm filled with the spirit. In the spirit is essentially the purpose of your prayer, who you're praying to, and the focus. When you're praying in the spirit, there's a focus. You need to be focused. This is why he used the word alert. It's about being focused and alert. I see what's going on. I know what's going on. And I'm calling out to God for this purpose. And then he says to be praying for other believers, intercession. These are all things that are weapons from God. Here's the challenge with this list. These don't feel like weapons. Reminding myself of my identity in Christ does not feel like a weapon. And if I'm honest, my Bible doesn't feel like a weapon. Prayer doesn't feel like a weapon. It feels like on most times something I have to do, sometimes something I can't wait to do. It doesn't feel like, sharing the gospel doesn't feel like a weapon. That joint feels like that one of the toughest things I got to do. How are these things Weapons. I alluded to this passage a few moments ago. But Matthew 4, let's take a look. Matthew 4. So this is right after John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in Matthew 3. He sees the Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. So it's clear the Holy Spirit is fully in Jesus. Matthew 4 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. All right, Jesus answers, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And then a couple verses later in verse 7, he takes him to this, the high, the pinnacle of the temple, and he tells him to throw himself down. Quote Psalm 91, 11, and 12, that the angels will protect you. Jesus says in verse 7, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. A couple more verses go by. He tells him, look, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you would just fall down and worship me. Jesus says in Matthew 4.10, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now let's peel back the layers and look at this for a second. So here is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man. The Holy Spirit just ascended on him in the form of a dove. The most supernatural being to ever walk the earth is in the wilderness and he is approached by Satan himself. And Satan begins to tempt him. Now, for various reasons, maybe because of Hollywood, maybe because we like Marvel, DC Comics, we tend to think that supernatural is like superpowers. So here's Jesus, the greatest superhero ever, standing before his arch nemesis, the devil, and with all the supernatural ability at his fingertips, to, he could knock Satan back on some, on some Gandalf versus Sauron. With all this supernatural ability that Jesus had, the same God who walked on water, who cast out these demons into a pig, that transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John, all this supernatural activity when he stands in front of the worst arch enemy of all time and he's tempted by him, what supernatural thing does he do to resist Satan? He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Bible. So here's the most supernatural being ever, who created everything. And when he's standing before the devil, he quotes the Bible three times. No magic. No, none of that. No sonic boom, none of that. None of that. He quotes Deuteronomy three times. Two verses in chapter 6, one verse in chapter 8. You know why? Because he's telling us, do the same. Your Bible is a weapon. Use it. Quote it. Say it. When you're tempted, use the Bible orally. Don't just say, not today, Satan. That's funny from time to time. But sometimes we got to quote God's word specifically. And if you don't have it memorized, don't be embarrassed. Go get your Bible. And if you ain't near your Bible, open your phone up. Do something. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, led to fight the, the enemy in the Spirit. Jesus is fighting in the Spirit, and he quotes the Bible. The Bible. You see, the issue is not that we don't have a weapon. We got to have faith that these are actual weapons. The Bible is an actual weapon that God says use. When I'm struggling, I got to use the weapon. Because we're called to resist in the spirit. And people act like that's this sort of, you know, Gnostic thing where we're, you know, seeing in, in, in multidimensional Nah, Jesus was filled with the Spirit, and the way he resisted Satan in the Spirit was to quote the Bible. That was it. So much for being in between two worlds. No, he was right here, right now, filled with the Spirit. God's word is sufficient. Be gone. It is written. Look, that was so powerful that even Satan tried it. It is written. His angels will protect you. Satan was like, let me get in on this too. It is written. Jesus was like, nah, fam. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit because that's real power. 
If we don't, then at best it's willpower. And that'll get you to some, that'll work sometimes, but it won't help you persevere to the end. You're not going to make it on willpower alone. We don't even do New Year's resolutions on willpower. You're not going to make it to the end. It's on real power in the spirit. Now, because of communion, I'm going to end here. If there's any questions, if not, then we'll, we'll take up communion. But let me, let me pray. Father, I pray for myself and each of us, those who belong to you, that you would refresh our souls where we need to be refreshed. There may be people who didn't need this reminder today, and I thank you for that. Praise God for those who have, who this was just a same old, same old for them. For the rest, Lord, who are need this reminder to remember, Lord, I pray that you would use your word, not what I said, but your word. Even if I didn't say anything, this, this, the word here is still true. And we can still apply this word. Father, we often don't see the supernatural aspect of our weapons because we want you to work in these superhero ways. And there are times you do work in ways that appear that way. But Father, I just pray that you'd help us to just appreciate the day in and day out work of there being a non-flesh and blood entity, or many of them, distracting us, keeping us from glorifying you. And that we would do the supernatural work of using our faith, renewing our minds, protecting our hearts, going after attitudes and thoughts, that we would share the gospel of truth of peace with others. Father, I pray that as these things don't seem supernatural, they don't seem as effective, I pray as the father whose son was, had a demon in Mark chapter 9, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help our faith to grow just a little bit more that we have confidence to see this reality as a gift. This is a gift that we get to believe in you and live for you. And then you're going to reward us for things that we wouldn't have done if it wasn't for you. And then allow us to spend eternity with you. This is a gift. Will help us worship the giver. Father, help us to obey you in the spirit, not in some supernatural feeling or moment, even though there are times you do grant us those experiences, no question. But Lord, I pray that you would give us just a day-to-day faithfulness as we recognize that even something as simple as praying and reading and reminding ourselves of our identity, these are things that just help us to resist the flaming darts of the devil who will question our identity. May whatever was true here today be true in the hearts of my brothers and sisters. And Father, I pray if there's any that is listening that are here or watching that are not believers in you, I pray that they would, that you would, you would prick their hearts and there was something that was said, even a phrase, even if it wasn't a verse, that there was something that was said to help them understand the serious nature of this. For the enemy is after us. He certainly has control of them. For your word tells us that people, in verse 2 Timothy 2.26, that people have been taken captive to do the devil's will, and they don't know it, but we do. Lord, I pray that if anyone is not a believer here, that you would use something that was said today or something that someone else says to them to bring them to a place of humility, to recognize, I really need to believe this. For you are merciful in that way, Lord. You've saved many, even moments before their death. But most people won't have that opportunity. So I pray that you'd save now. 
while they're alive, while they're here, while they're watching. And Lord, help us to not just agree intellectually where we agree, but to consider what do I do functionally. In our D groups this week, help us to think through how do we, how do, we do this practically? What are we going to do practically? Let's have a season, Lord, where we just hold ourselves accountable with our D groups and all of that. Where we just talk through what are some practical ways that we can do this? What are practical ways to read and remind ourselves the truth? What are practical ways to, to share the gospel? What are practical ways? Most will agree intellectually, even if they don't like how I said something. The truth is the truth. But Lord, help us agree to agree functionally. Help us to agree in action, as James says, in word and in deed, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.